Hey, grab your Bible and go to Philippians. Last week, we did something we had not planned to do. We started our Live Love series back in September. And if you missed our Live Love series, go back and watch it. Because especially if, if you're new to our church, hey, uh, my name is Matt. I get to be one of the pastors here. And if you're looking for the per- perfect church, keep looking. Go somewhere else next week because this ain't it. Uh, but if you are wondering who we are and want to know what kind of we're about as a church, if you'll go to our YouTube channel or you'll go to the Venice Church app and just watch any Live Love series that's on there because that will give you a real window into who we are and what we're about because we're, we're not a social club. Uh, what just happened up this morning is as awesome as they are. We're not here to do a concert every weekend. Somebody asked me, when is, when is the worship team going to do a concert? Never. We do worship nights and we leverage the vehicle of music to us rest in the throne room of heaven, but we don't do concerts. That's not, that's not what we're about. We're about using the tool of music to usher people into the presence of God. And we got a team that does it pretty doggone good, I will say. Yeah, you can celebrate those guys. It's awesome. But we're a church, and we exist to inspire people to live and love like Jesus. And as we were coming kind of toward the end of October, I felt like the Lord say, okay, it's time, it's time to move on from specifically talking about live love. And I really just felt in my spirit that God was calling us to lean into the, this letter, this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And, and the more this week, as I've prayed and I've, I've studied and I've thought and I've read Philippians again, and, and if, you're, if you read along with us, you can read the entire book of Philippians very easily just in a single day. I mean, it's, it's super short, but it's super profound and powerful. And, and we did this book as a men's group, our men's community group. And can I just say, I am so grateful and celebrating what God is doing in our community groups right now. If you're not a part of a community group, you, you need to find a way. Our men's community groups experiencing a season like we've never been before. And part of that is thanks to my main man, Casey Harris, who's uh, God just uses that dude to speak all of life into all of us. And it's, we went through this letter as a men's group back earlier in the year. And I wrote a lot of stuff in my journal as I was reading through the scriptures and I was revisiting that while we were walking through Live Love. And I just felt the Lord say, dive back into this book because it, it, it's, it's beautiful. And it's powerful, and all, all of the Bible is. But this, this book has been speaking new things into my heart and breathing life into my spirit. And, and what I've discovered is if I was to 10 years from now or 15 years from now, write a letter to you guys. And, and I hope to be and I plan to be standing here preaching 10 or 15 years from now. But if I was to write a letter to our church and just dump my heart out, I feel like I would say a lot of the things that, that Paul's saying here. And it makes sense because this is a church that, that Paul helped birth. And the cool thing about Philippians is we, as we looked last week, we get to watch it be born. We get a window into the beginnings of this body of Christ in Acts chapter 16. And we get to see this this crazy mixture of people. The first three people that we believe to be part of the church of Philippi, Lydia and then two unnamed people. This demon-possessed girl who had been the property of men exploited by them her entire life because she had a weird and unique gift and she's delivered from it. And then all of a sudden, she is cast aside by them because they can't make money off of her anymore. And more than likely, she became part of this body, possibly even discipled by Lydia and comes to know Jesus and walk in faith. And then the third guy is who we call Jailer Joe because everything's alliteration in my brain. Oh, Jailer Joe, who had a sword, maybe at his throat, about to take his own life. And Paul says, we ain't leaving. We're going to stay here. 
and he and his whole household meets Jesus, and we get to watch this church be born. And, and, and unlike so many of the other letters that Paul writes in our New Testament, this is much more about celebrating than scolding. Like, we're going to look at the birth, we're going to walk through First and Second Corinthians this summer, and y'all, that was a church that was wilding out. I mean, they were some, go read First Corinthians chapter 5, and it feels like a soap opera or one of the stories your grandma watched during the day when she was, when she was growing up. Y'all ever calling that stories? Your grandma watched stories. Days of our life, anyway. Philippians. I got to preach. I got to quit talking about crazy things. Philippians chapter one is where we're going to pick up because last week we kind of gave a little bit of an introduction into this whole thing. We opened up chapter one and, and we see Paul pinning these words. And, and keep in mind that when Paul is writing these this letter, as well as three other letters that we have in our New Testament, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon, he is in prison. And he's longing to express some things to people that are close to his heart. And in knowing that there's a good chance he may never be able to see them in person, he puts pen to paper and he writes down these words and he sends these letters to them. And I love how we get this window into this man whose life is completely different when he's putting pen to paper than it was when we first get introduced to him in Acts 8. When we're introduced, I told you last week, when we're introduced to Paul, he's a man full of hatred and rage. And now he's a man full of grace and gratitude because that's what the gospel will do to a person. Come on. It, would, it drastically changes. It alters your character because it changes your nature. It doesn't just change your behavior. It, it, it transforms your heart and your mind and the way that you see the world and the way that you see other people. When you know Jesus, it transforms you. Come on, testify. It changes you. And he says, hey, I'm, as he opens up this letter, number one, man, I'm so grateful for y'all. He says, I'm grateful for the partnership that we have in the gospel. That's part of the reason why we chose that word as a church. I, I don't know if you know this, but we don't have membership at Vintage. Again, because we don't have a swimming pool and a golf course. We're not, we're not a country club. We're We're church. And we actually call it partnership here. And that's, that's what Paul called it. He said, we're, we're in partnership together as believers. Like together, we, we, we serve Jesus. I've got one assignment. You've got a different one. But together, we're partners for the gospel. And when, when, you, when people partner under the umbrella of Jesus Christ for the mission that he gave us, you'll, ch- you'll change a community. And he says, but I don't want you to worry about me. Even though I'm in prison and even though I don't know if my next meal will be my last meal, I don't know if the next sunset I see will be the last time I watch it go down, I don't know if I'll see another day of life. But don't worry, because I've decided to live as Christ and to die as gain. That there's nothing that life could give me or death could take from me that can replace what Jesus has done for me. He says, don't worry about it. He says, but in the meantime, verse 27, Philippians chapter 1. He says, but in the meantime, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. He says, hey, first of all, remember, first and foremost, you are citizens of heaven. That you may be residents of earth, but you're citizens of heaven. And that may seem like just a little throwaway line that you think Paul wrote in there, but it's a reminder that before you're anything, you are a child of God. Never forget that. Before you are anything else, you are a child of God. You are a foreigner in this land just passing through. 
And the reason why that's important is because if you don't, if you, if you choose to forget that and something other than being child of God rises to the priority of your life, it changes your posture and the way that you live it out. Look at me before your husband, you're his child. Before you are a father, you are his child. Before you are a wife, before you are a mother, before you are a CEO, before whatever title that you have, and they're great. Before you are anything else, you're a child of God. The reason why that's so important is because when something else becomes more important, priority will also often lead to identity. Come on. Somebody might, when you think, okay, before anything, I am their dad. You start to root your identity in being their dad. And that's a weight that that relationship can't carry. If you, if you misplace identity, you forfeit security. When you misplace identity, you forfeit security. As he's saying, everything I'm about to tell you right now, if it's going to be accomplished in your life, if anything that you're about to hear from me is going to be lived out, you have to remember above all else, you are his child. You are a citizen of heaven. You're a resident of earth, but you're a citizen of heaven and do not forget it. Because if you misplace that identity and it's so easy to do, come on, somebody, it's so easy to do, so easy to do. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, listen to me. What he's not saying is, okay, now that Jesus has saved you, you got to earn it. That's not what he's saying. Because that could never be. You, you could never do enough to earn it. You, you can't give enough money. You can't serve enough hours. You can't give enough, away enough turkeys to earn it. Now, he's saying, no, now in, in response, in reaction to what you know Jesus has done for you, live worthy of the gospel. And then he says, then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. And what unfolds over the next several verses to me is Paul begins to describe what he's hoping to hear. And that's what I've entitled this message, hoping to hear. That Paul knows there's, there's a good chance that, that the only thing I know about you will be what I hear about you, because I'm probably not going to make it to be able to hang out with y'all again. I don't know that my feet will ever feel the soil of Philippi ever again. I don't know that I'll ever be able to, to, as we said growing up, I don't know if I'll ever be able to hug your neck. The country people laughed because y'all, in case I don't, here's what I'm hoping to hear. And over the next several minutes, and y'all, I got probably way more things I want to say than I got time to preach. Y'all going to stay with me? Y'all going to stay with me? All right. Because Paul says, here's what I'm hoping to hear. And what he's hoping to hear, can I be honest with you, is what I'm hoping is present among, among us. The things that he hopes to hear are present in the church at Philippi are the things I desperately want to be present at the church in Randleman. <laughs> because everything he's about to say, I deeply believe if they're present among us, then look at me, our best years will be ahead of us. But if any one of these things isn't, I fear we will never accomplish all that God desires. So what does he say? He says, I'm hoping to hear, verse, the latter part of verse 27, I'm hoping to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Right there in just a couple of sentences, Paul says some powerful things that he is hoping to hear about the Philippian church. He hopes to hear they're standing firm, working together and fearing nothing. He says, first of all, I hope to hear that you're standing firm. 
Because he knows that the church is trying to exist in a culture that's flowing in the opposite direction of scripture. That they're going to have to follow God in a culture going against the grain of God. That already the gospel in its early days is being trying to be distorted. They're trying to water it down or weigh it down with unnecessary things. And the culture is trying to shift them away from true faith in Jesus. And he says, I hope that you are standing firm. It's amazing that centuries have gone by. And does anybody feel like we're living out the same things? Anybody feel like that you live in a culture that's going against the grain of your faith? Where it seems like popular opinion and what the world says is or isn't true or is okay or it just seems to be shifting with the wind and even Christians are getting caught up in it. He says, you got you to stand firm. And I wrote in my journal as we were journeying through this together as a men group that our ability to stand firm is dependent on what we're standing on. That our ability to stand firm is dependent on what we're standing on. And that's my question. What are we standing on? Are we standing on the truth of God or the emotions of the moment? Are we standing on, on what God has said about the issues of our day? Or are we standing on popular opinion? What are, what are we standing on? That the only thing that we can stand on that won't give way is the truth of God's word. And do we know it? Do we know what it says about all the things that our culture is challenging in the day in which we live? That if we're going to stand firm, then we have to stand on the word of God because standing on anything else will eventually collapse. He says, stand, stand firm. I also believe this, that if we abandon truth, we forfeit power. If we abandon truth, we forfeit power. That the power to fulfill the purposes of God are dependent on understanding the word of God. And that when we start to abandon truth for our own ideas or our own ideologies or the things that make sense to us at times, then we stand on something that can't carry the weight of the life that we're called to live. He says, I hope to hear you're standing firm. He says, I hope to hear you're standing firm and I hope to hear that you're working together. That you're working together. Did you notice it? He said, contending together for the faith of the gospel. He said, number one, contending, or, or the translation you're reading, I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible, but the one that you might be reading may say striving together for the gospel. The actual Greek word that's used there in scripture is the same word we get the word like athletics from. As, a, as, a, as an athletic team preparing to compete that there's this preparation that goes as a team works together in, in athletic competition, that we, that we have to be a unit, that we have to work together, that we have to know each other's roles and the importance of each and together going forward for the gospel. He says, I hope you're working together because together we can do much more than we could ever attempt on our own, that collectively advance the gospel. And he says, together for the faith of the gospel. He doesn't say, see, if the church ever becomes about pursuing anything other than the mission that Jesus gave us, it begins to move in a direction outside of what God can empower. Did that make sense? He says, I hope that you're working together, that we're a unit. I love how our church works together. 
Even, even like things like we're doing right now, this Thanksgiving meal initiative. Y'all, you don't understand. There are hundreds of volunteers that make this thing happen. There are partnerships and people willing to do things and make things happen. And, and this is a collective effort. On that Tuesday night, there'll be kids from our kids' ministry, our student ministry, like every single age group and everybody working together. And that night, as I watch people come together and passing out meals and do it all, it's a reminder of maybe just maybe we get a glimpse of the Bible coming to life in our own age. Work together. He says, I hope to hear you're standing firm, and I hope to hear you're working together, and I also hope to hear you're fearing nothing. Now, Paul doesn't say fear nothing because there's nothing to fear. He's writing from prison. He doesn't say fear nothing because there's nothing to fear. He's basically saying, wait for the fear to go away. You'll be paralyzed, and you'll never do anything significant with your life. He says, yeah, there's fear, but don't let the fear control you. Refuse to let the fear win. That I know it would be really easy right now with you knowing that I'm in prison and knowing that this could be your fate too, that somehow you begin to shrink back. Look at me, church. Now more than ever, we can't shrink back. We have to press forward. We have to stand up. We have to move forward with the gospel and take it into the places that need it most, not worrying about what might or could happen, but all the more pursuing the gospel and its advancement and God's glory and the building of his kingdom in the age in which we live. He says, I hope to hear that you are standing firm. I hope to hear you're working together. I hope to hear you're fearing nothing. And then verse 28, go back into it. It says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation And this is from God, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul's writing to the Philippians and he says, I'm hoping to hear. I'm hoping to hear you that you're standing firm. I'm hoping to hear that you're working together. I'm hoping to hear that you're fearing nothing. And I says, I'm hoping to hear that you're willing and are embracing suffering. Did you catch it? He says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also suffer for him. That, look at me, that to believe in him is to suffer for him. That to believe in him is to suffer for him. That This is what I wrote in my journal. If we aren't willing to suffer, we're not prepared to serve. If we aren't willing to suffer, then we're not prepared to serve. That there is no serving Jesus without embracing some measure of suffering. You cannot pursue Jesus and not experience suffering on some measure along the way. Now, it might not be as drastic or as painful or as obvious as what Paul is experiencing, but if you're going to serve Jesus, you're going to suffer for Jesus. It may simply be suffering the forfeit of your comfort. There's people right now to help us make this Thanksgiving meal initiative happen. You're going to have to embrace some suffering. Some of it is you're embracing the suffering of of the financial cost of filling a box in a time where groceries are $9 million a week. 
Or maybe it's embracing some of y'all, the thought of stepping on some stranger's porch and having a conversation with somebody you've never met scares you to death. Like you want to get slain in the spirit and just pass out right now and act like it can't happen. But you know what? You might have to embrace that discomfort in order to look at somebody who needs to know that people still care and are paying attention. They need somebody to say, there's a grandma that's got all six grandkids, and she's all by herself, and she feels all alone, and she's struggling, and this Thanksgiving meal is going to give her just a few moments where life doesn't suck for a couple minutes. And you're going to make that happen. And you need to look her in the face and say, you haven't been forgotten. You, there's some people in the room and that to pray out loud is the scariest thing. You'd rather bungee jump from a helicopter. I don't know where that came from. Then pray out loud. But you're going to sit in somebody's living room and maybe just maybe you need to suffer a little bit and embrace that discomfort and let them hear you talking to God about them. Come on. Suffering. And now, I don't know what kind of suffering someday we'll have to embrace in order to continue following Jesus. If I understand scripture at all, I think it's going to get harder and harder and we just got to be ready. Paul says, I'm hoping to hear that you're standing firm, you're working together, you're fearing nothing, and you're embracing suffering because if you aren't willing to suffer, you aren't prepared to serve Jesus. And then as he moves into chapter two, I think it's still in this same spirit, this same mindset. Y'all know that these verses and chapters, Paul didn't write this and put, okay, now chapter two, verse one. Right, Y'all know that we put that in to help us have reference so that we can move into the scriptures. Like Paul didn't write that in as he's writing this continuous letter to this church. So he continues, verse 1 of chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Stop right there. Can I recall, can I just remind you of a really important Bible study tool that as you're reading through the scriptures and you see words repeated, God doesn't repeat without reason. Circle them. Did you know there's a word? It says, if, 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 if then there's any encouragement, if any consolation or love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete. How? By thinking the same way having the same love united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Paul is thinking about this church, and he says, if I don't make it to you, I'm hoping to hear. I'm hoping to hear that you are standing firm, working together, fearing nothing, embracing suffering, and protecting unity. He says, I hope to hear that you're protecting unity. He says, having the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. That I hope to hear that you are protecting unity because I know you guys come from different places. Again, go back to this introduction that we had to the church at Philippi. Lydia, the demon girl, Jailer Joe. If that's a microcosm of the diversity of the church That's happening at Philippi, where there is diversity, you have to fight for unity. 
So I know you come from different backgrounds and upbringings and even some different theological positions. And now y'all are coming to try to figure out what it means to walk in this new relationship with Jesus. And I know there's moments when things get a little tense and maybe y'all argue a little bit and have some hard conversations. Remember, above all, a house divided cannot stand. That there has to be unity in the body for it to function well and accomplish the purposes of God and the world in which we live. You got you to protect unity. You got to protect unity. And then I think he gives us the recipe for making sure that unity exists. Look at verse three. He says, here's how you're going to do this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Can you believe what would happen in our culture if we just applied those two verses to everywhere we are? Our homes, our jobs, like everywhere. Let me read. Can I read them again? I'm going to read them again. Verse three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. He says, I hope to hear that you're standing firm, working together, fearing nothing, embracing suffering, protecting unity, and practicing humility. Do something for me. Go just do a deep dive into the concept of unity as portrayed in the New Testament. Almost everywhere you see the Bible calling us to unity, it invokes this idea of humility. Because where there, it, it, where there is no humility, there will never be any unity. Because where humility is absent, what is present is arrogance and ego. And arrogance and ego are enemies to unity. Come on, look at me. There is no place in the body of Christ for arrogance or ego from anybody. I think one of the biggest problems with what's happened in church culture in my generation, especially from people who stand in positions like mine and have titles like mine, is arrogance and ego get out of control and it destroys the church. He says, if you're going to protect unity, you're going to have to practice humility. He says, it's not about you. The church is, is about one man his name is Jesus. Jesus above all else. Look at me. This, people say, they use this phrase, your church. Matt, how's your church? I don't own this place. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church. He died for it, not me. This is his church. And we can never forget that. This is I love the spirit behind when we say, like, that's my church. I appreciate that ownership. But can we all just in our minds always know that this church belongs to God? It belongs to him. It's not about my agenda. It's not about your agenda. It's about God's mission above all things. He says, I hope to hear that you are standing firm. You are working together. You are fearing nothing. You are embracing suffering. You are protecting unity and you are practicing humility. Then he says in verse five, I tell you what, just do this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I tell you what, this will be the best thing you could do. Church at Philippi, if 
you, you started strong. If you're going to finish well, if you're going to continue to see God do in you and through you the things that matter, then what you really need to do is be like Jesus. I said a few years ago in our Live Love series that the, the best way to inspire people to live in love like Jesus is to live in love like Jesus. I know it's, it's, it's difficult, Brian. It's, it's profound. It's complex. Like the best way for us to inspire people to live in love like Jesus is actually to do it. He says, have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And he says, let me remind you what that looked like. Verse six. He says, who, Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, what did he do? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taken on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, you really want to know what I don't want you to do? You really want to know? I'm hoping to hear that you're like Jesus in everything that you do. Verse 12, he says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is, good, it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his purpose. And after telling them all this, after he says, I'm hoping to hear that you're standing firm, that you're working together, that you're fearing nothing, that you're embracing suffering, that you're uh, protecting unity, that you're practicing humility, I'm hoping to hear that each one of you is owning this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He is reminding us what I have tried to remind us all over these years, that you got to take ownership for your discipleship. You got to take ownership for what is and isn't present in your life. As I said a few weeks ago, you are as close to God as you want to be. You're as mature in your faith as you, as you have determined you desire to be. He says each person that this is, this is a letter he's writing collectively to the church, but has to be owned individually by everybody in it. It's not okay we standing firm, we working together, we fearing nothing. No, like if something that each one of us has to decide that we desire for ourselves so that collectively, again, collectively, we will only do what individually we have decided. And then he says, in the latter part of verse 16, or uh, verse 14, and while all this is happening, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Can I read that again? Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you should shine like stars by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. 
For even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad. And I rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. He says, protect. Look at me. Protect what's been planted so that it can keep growing. And Paul says, I was there when it started, and it started so powerfully and beautifully. Lydia and all of you guys who are this core group of people that found Christ in this moment. And now it's been a little over a decade from the time the church is born that we see in Acts 16 to the time that Paul puts pen to paper to write to it. And he says, just keep going. That you're not done. That I'm hoping to hear all these things are present in you because God's not done with you. That it's not over. That there's still work to be done. And that's what just strikes my spirit. That here we are as a church, as vintage church here in this space. And we're 15 years deep into this thing. But the reason why we're not done is because Jesus hasn't come back yet. That's when we know when we're finished. When, the, when there's still days in front of us, there's still something that God wants to do through us. If there's still days in front of us, that means there are still things that God wants to do through us. And you know what? I'd rather fall short than stop short. I'd rather keep running and running and running and running for him than to get weary and worn out and afraid and scared and not do what God's called us to do. Paul's saying, you got more work to do. Why is he saying, stand firm and fear nothing and all that he's saying? Because there's still more work to be done. Back in the spring, we helped with the 5K at Run 5 Feed 5. Kevin and Kim Reddick, who run a ministry here in our community called Run 5 Feed 5 that helps provide much needed food to kids all across our area. And they do a 5K run every spring to kind of help raise money and support and awareness for that. And I didn't run in it because nobody was chasing me. And that's the only time I really like to run. But my kids did. And actually my son, Aiden, finished second in his age group. But the reason why he finished second in his age group is because he didn't realize that to finish the race, there was one more lap. So he came through the finish line, sat down and started eating the muffin. And somebody, somebody finally realized it, to do the full 5K, you have to do one more lap. And so he threw his food down, did the other lap and ended up finishing, I think maybe two minutes behind the guy that finished first. But I thought, boy, if you just re hadn't realized that there was more race to be run, you could have finished stronger. There's more race to be run. Paul is essentially trying to remind the church at Philippi not to quit, but to keep going. He knows that they're probably discouraged because this man that was so essential in them getting started is not in a very good place. But here's what can't happen too. Like no matter where Paul is, the church is still the church. That no matter what's happening in my life or in the lives of anybody that ever steps on this platform, the church is still the church. And even if maybe I'm not in a prison cell, but 
maybe from time to time in a prison of depression or anxiety, I want you to know that I hope to hear that you are standing firm, that you are working together, that you are fearing nothing, that you are embracing suffering, that you are protecting unity, that you are practicing humility, and finally, that you are choosing joy. Because as you see, that's what Paul finishes there. He says, in the same way, you also be glad and rejoice with me. That we get to be a part of the bigger story that God is writing in the history of the world. That the things that we do for his glory in pursuit of his mission are things that have eternal significance. That yeah, in a couple weeks on that Friday, maybe every single bite of food that we have delivered will be gone or tossed in the trash. But the imprint that we put on somebody's heart might just last for all of eternity because we decided to do more than just go and give people food. We decided to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that has the power and potential to change everything. So bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Can I give you this list one more time and just ask you to think about what you need to do different, what you need to do better in order to see these things reflected in your life. I'm hoping to hear. I'm hoping to hear that you're standing firm on the word of God with God's people working together for the mission that he has given us, fearing nothing, not because there's nothing to fear, but because we know we have a God that's bigger than anything we might face embracing suffering, knowing that when we serve Jesus, it's going to cost us and the sacrifice is worth it all. Protecting unity, knowing that together, unified in the gospel, we can do so much more. Practicing humility because we know that arrogance and ego are never a part of the body of Christ when it's operating as he intended. And choosing joy. I read a quote, said joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, it is a consequence. God, help us. Help us to live out everything that your word has challenged us to do this day. Help us to constantly look at our own lives and see what we need to adjust or allow your spirit to change. And God, I pray that you would just continue to build your church and use it use it, God, for your glory and in the advancement of your gospel and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, don't forget that if you have yet to sign up to join us that Tuesday before Thanksgiving, jump on the Venice Church app. Let us know that you're going to be here to help us deliver. Let us know if you have families that need meals. Let us know how we can serve you and make sure you're paying attention to all the other things like student ministry and community groups and all the things happening all throughout the week. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time. Give God some glory as you head out today.